It's the relationships with people. When you've got everything, that's the only thing that's left. And why I like it is because it's a framework. Industrial real estate investing is a framework for maintaining great relationships with people that you like. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Joel Friedland. Joel has been in real estate for 42 years. In that time, he has focused solely on industrial real estate. He's done a number of deals in that time, and he's seen quite a few economic and real estate cycles. Today, we're getting his perspective on how passive investors can evaluate operators specifically as it pertains to whether they are trustworthy and credible. We really get into some of the nitty gritty and some of his thoughts on specific questions that passive investors can ask and actions that they can take to, again, gauge the trustworthiness and credibility of operators. We also discuss his thoughts on the state of the market today. Remember, he's seen a few cycles and what he thinks we're looking at moving forward economically, especially in the industrial real estate space. It's a great conversation. Joel brings a wealth of knowledge to us today, and you're going to learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's get with Joel. Joel, thanks so much for joining us today. Today, I'd love to talk about vetting people that we're thinking about doing business with, how to understand them and know whether we can trust them. But before we get into that, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, how long you've been in real estate, everything like that? Sure. I am 64 and I started in real estate when I was 22. So I've got 42 years as an industrial real estate specialist. It's all I do, nothing but industrial. I love multifamily. So don't get me wrong. I, I'm very into multifamily and I love self-storage as well. Not office so much, not flex either, by the way, I can explain why not flex. But I've made about 2,000 leases and sales in industrial properties, primarily in the Chicago area, as an industrial real estate broker. I belong to an organization called the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. There's about 2,000 members, and that's a group of people who do business with each other all around the world in industrial primarily. And I love industrial because industrial involves understanding the kinds of businesses that make products and everything around us is made in an industrial building. You look around my office, that lamp, the desk, the phone, the components, your microphone. So every single one of these components or products is made in an industrial building and 75% of them are made in what are called B and C industrial buildings by companies that are either a division of a larger company. I'll give you an example. There's a very large company that has 70 divisions that make industrial products all around the United States and Canada. And it's called Bunzel, B-U-N-Z-L. And they just happened to have bought a company from a friend of mine in Chicago who makes safety products for the welding industry. That's like super specific. And 
They have 69 other companies that make all kinds of products and they occupy a 33,000 square foot building on the north side of Chicago on Trip Avenue, which by the way, is the street on which Walt Disney was born. A lot of people don't know he was born in Chicago. They actually, they made a shrine out of his house. So you can go there and there's a sign in front. This is where Walt Disney was born. These B and C buildings are older. They're not like the big buildings that you see on the tollway when you drive in and out of suburban areas and you see these gigantic concrete buildings with a line of docks and trucks. And then on the sides you have glass, which is where the offices are. Those are like A buildings. Those are owned by pension funds, insurance companies. Our kind of buildings, the B and C, are owned by entrepreneurs, families, and people like us who are syndicators. Cool. Okay. And I've seen in about the last year or so, industrial seems to have gotten more popular in the podcastosphere, if you will, for real estate investors. But as you mentioned, you've been in the industrial space for 42 years. Pretty incredible. And you've seen a number of different economic cycles happen in that time. I'm sure you've seen a lot of tenants come and go, a lot of other investors who are investing in the properties come and go. And there were investors in those deals, I'm sure a lot of passive investors who maybe didn't know what they were getting into, maybe trusted the wrong people from time to time. And certainly some investors trusted the right people. So let's talk about how we can know who we're investing with, who we should and shouldn't invest with, and how we can make those vetting decisions. It's a really big topic, trust, and where do you think we should start on that? That's a great topic. So let's start with my first recession. In 1981, when I got into the business, interest rates on loans were 17%. I went to work for a family business. It wasn't my family. People named Podolsky, who were a Chicago big name industrial owner of 84 buildings, 6 million square feet. So back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, they built a portfolio. They were very early syndicators. And when I went to work for them, my job was to be a leasing agent when I was 22 and fill up 10 vacant buildings of the 84 buildings that they own. And they asked me, how are you going to do this? And I was a bit of a sales guy. So. I said, I'll go door to door in industrial parks and I'll stop in and ask nearby tenants if they would consider moving down the street to your vacant buildings. And I went nuts. In my first year from 1981 until 1982, I probably cold called somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 industrial buildings. Wow. Yeah. Every day, dozens a day. And I'd go home at night and I would just be so stoked because I found things. It's amazing when you work, you find things. So in that first year, I filled up nine of their 10 vacant buildings, but it was rough because the economy was terrible and there were a lot of vacancies and there were a lot of people who were having trouble paying their mortgages, very much like 2008. From that time on, three additional serious recessions, including 2008, which was a disaster. And I will tell you that in 2008, went into a depression. I was so ashamed that I had put together a bunch of industrial real estate syndications and that people were going to lose money. And it was on my watch. I was 
on that couch back there. I couldn't get off. It was worse than 1981 because in 1981, I was just a leasing agent. I was just selling my time. I wasn't representing as a fiduciary, a group of investors. So I learned these lessons and I guess the best way to put it is how do you trust somebody? They start with their vulnerability and not selling. And I know that's how you feel. I've seen you on podcasts. I don't sell. I negative sell. I say, let me start with, I've been through recessions and in 2008, when I almost lost everybody's money, but luckily didn't because I came back from my depression, I learned something, which was you got to work your way out of trouble. And how do you trust somebody? Let a, have somebody start with what they've done wrong. People start listening. When I start with that, when I have a new investor on the phone, call me, someone refers me. I say, I want to start out with, I've made mistakes and I've had deals that have lost money and I've been through cycles and this is anything but simple. And if you want to hear a few war stories, I'd be happy to tell you about them. Or would you like to hear about some of the opportunities and the upside? And usually they say, we'd like to hear both. And I think that's one of the, the great ways of earning trust is to start with the most honest, vulnerable way of describing a situation that I've been through and they can relate to it. Everybody's got problems and everyone's got a family member that was in a depression at some time or had an addiction and went through some sort of a program. These guys who say, you're going to make a lot of money. You're going to make all kinds of passive income. You can, you'll have total freedom and you can buy a Porsche and you can, and you buy a winter home in Florida and you can have a place in Hawaii. I'll show you how to do it. That is not the way to earn trust. In my opinion, that's the way to get somebody who looks at you and says, I don't think that this person is credible. So I think it's that credibility starting out with that position of vulnerability. So it's a great point, but trust is a double-edged sword, right? If you will, because someone needs to be trustworthy. And there are a few things that factor into that. Maybe they're trustworthy, but maybe they're not. And they've convinced us. There's a basically a charisma aspect to this. And that's in any industry, right? You can have people who are very convincing salespeople or incredibly charismatic that might seem trustworthy, but ultimately prove not to be. How can we dig deeper and build that understanding of whether somebody is truly trustworthy in, you know, just building that relationship with them? That's a great question too. And I believe that the best way is to say to somebody, I don't know if you even know what questions to ask, but I'd like to tell you what the best questions are that are asked by the most sophisticated investors. And if I give you those questions and they resonate with you, I'd like to answer them for you because I'm not sure unless you're highly sophisticated and have done dozens and dozens of investments in whether it's private equity or real estate or whatever it is, there's a BS meter. And the one thing I want to do is get past that quickly and get into the facts and figures and some of the risks. And we start talking about the risks first, that's the way to do it, I think. Makes sense. And I think that's reasonable investors look to understand the risks first before going straight toward the upside. So in a nuts and bolts sense, what are your thoughts or opinions on how operators, general partners should look to protect limited partners when 
a deal go sideways. And I'll clarify that question a little bit. Just prior to our call getting on here, it's a Friday evening that we're talking. I had a call with a passive investor. I talked to a lot of passive investors and he was asking about, you know, do GPs, should they bring capital to the table rather than doing a capital call to limited partners? And of course they should put their money up first, right? And aim to avoid capital calls, but there's more to it than that. It's not just about potential capital calls. So to go back to the question, how should GPs approach protecting investors in a nuts and bolts sense when deals do go sideways? Once they've gone sideways, it's too late. The question that I would ask a little differently is, what do you do to mitigate risk so that if something goes against you, not necessarily sideways, but against you, whether it's the loss of a major tenant, that's huge. Vacancy is the worst thing in, in our business. You can't make up for a vacant building when money's not coming in and money's going out. In a situation like that, how do you mitigate the risk? And what I've learned in my case, I'm an oddball. I'm not trying to teach people how to get rich. I'm trying to show people who already have money because we do 506Cs and anybody who invests with us, they have to be accredited. And so what I say to them is, I've learned through my four cycles that the biggest risk is debt. The biggest risk is always debt because if you can't pay your debt, then you're going to go out of business. Look at all these companies you read in, in the financial papers. Like, I don't know, what do you have in Richmond? What's local? Is Richmond Times Dispatch is a big one. Yeah, we have something called Crane Chicago Business. They love to put articles in there with a picture of the latest building that has been taken back by a lender. You know, they call that jingle mail, right? Developer owner sends the keys back in the mail and they don't own the building anymore. How do you avoid jingle mail? And what I've learned in my case is keep the debt to a minimum. When you take on a lot of debt, you're taking on a lot of risk. And one of the things that we've done is we've actually, I would say almost 75% of the time been buying our buildings, all cash, no debt, no mortgage. And if there's no mortgage, there's no lender. And if there's no lender, there's no foreclosure. And so that is one of my risk mitigation techniques. But boy, is it a lot of work because to raise the money, if, if you're buying a building, I'll give you an example. This building where, where they make the, the safety products for the welding industry on Trip Avenue, that building, we bought it all cash, 2.7 million all in. And our average investor was $50,000. We had some people that put in 250. We had some that put in 100. We had a bunch who put in 25. But you're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 investors one way or another. And we had to raise all the money. Now, think how much easier it would have been for me to go borrow 70% of the 2.7 million. And instead, I had to work three or four times as hard. That's a risk mitigator to have an all-cash deal. When the tenant leaves, I've got a vacancy, but I've got some reserves and I can cover it. Most people can't do that. Real estate's a leverage business. But when I talk about the fact that I've learned the lesson of banks chasing me in 2008 for payments, I had seven banks. I had 50 guarantees out there. It was devastating. So in my case, for my Older investors who are more sophisticated and who have a lot of money, they just don't want to lose their money. They want to preserve. 
And so that's number one. Number two is due diligence. Due diligence is so critical and most people don't do it as well as they should. If you don't have 30 calls or 30 meetings on everything that could possibly go wrong with the building, HVAC contractor, roofing inspectors, parking lot inspectors, people who are civil engineers to talk about the pipes that come from the building out to the sewer and out to the water, because it's all the water and sewer are in the street. If we don't do all of that, it's going to be some surprise that just lands on us. And they st we still have surprises. We still have bad things that happen. So those two risk mitigating factors, when I tell people that's what we do, I think the trust level goes up. So we're in an environment today, economically, where not only is there investor demand for industrial properties, there seems to be a pretty strong tenant demand in most markets for industrial properties. But given that you've seen several economic cycles, you've seen the downside of tenant demand for industrial properties, I'm sure. I mean, the Great Recession is one good example. But there are a lot of new entrants to the industrial investing industry. Do you feel they're adequately prepared for a potential decreasing demand scenario in industrial? Are they adequately capitalized, taking on too much debt? What do you think? There's too much risk on the table right now. I, I equate it in some ways to gambling. If you have a big mortgage and you're counting on the market continuing to increase and stay at, at the vacancy level, our vacancy level throughout North America right now is under 4%. I, I have a friend who's got a building in uh, London, Ontario, near Toronto. The vacancy factor there is 1%. It's never been like that in industrial, but the reason for it is because the internet has changed the world. Retail stores go out of business and what moves in to take their place? A warehouse where property, where products are distributed to people's homes and to people's businesses. And also there's political unrest all over the world. And we're not doing great with China right now. And a lot of companies are doing something called onshoring or reshoring, which is they used to make products because you could pay employees in China, 50 cents an hour were here, they were making $15. And every manufacturer is going to chase the lowest cost and where the labor is the lowest cost, that's where they're going to do it. Because of the problems with China, a lot of companies are now moving to making products in India and Vietnam, but a lot of them are bringing them back to the United States. Because if you remember during COVID supply chain caused a shortfall and it, there, there was nothing available. On, on store shelves of different kinds of products. Same thing was true of manufacturing components. You couldn't get them. Just to be defensive, a lot of industrial companies are bringing back to this country and to Mexico, by the way. Mexico's growing at a huge pace for industrial. In our vacancy factor, in Chicago, we just bought four buildings in a neighborhood near downtown Chicago. We closed on it last week. And in that sub market, the vacancy factor is zero. In my whole life, wow. I've never seen this before. And this is what rents are doing. Our tenant in one of our buildings is paying $5 a foot net. We have what we call double net. They're not triple net because the landlord's responsible for the roof and the structure. Tenants don't take that. They're, they're no, they go kicking and screaming. 
We're not going to buy a new roof for your building. You'll be responsible. So as a landlord, we take that. So we call it double net. So it's net of taxes and net of insurance, but not net of the big maintenance items. So I've got a tenant that was actually on Shark Tank called Element <laughs> Bars. And it's owned by this guy, Jonathan Miller. And I loved him. He's become a good friend as well as a tenant in 50,000 square feet. And his rent is $5 a foot and his lease is coming up. And I have to explain to him that the rent's going to go to $9. Wow. 80% increase. We've never seen that before in industrial. So it's like the heyday for industrial, but this thing's going to pop. Pull out a balloon, pull out a pin, pop. Because it's been too good for too long. And these high interest rates are going to get us. And companies don't expand forever. And there's way too much new A, A industrial being built. These giant buildings. And the market's going to run out of demand capacity at some point. And there's going to be a downturn. And that's when the mitigation of risk was really important when you bought it. Not when it starts to get bad. So a lot of this has to do with making sure the sponsor has the appropriate judgment and a risk tolerance, if you will, that is in line with the investors. We all have different risk tolerances and how we invest. Some folks are gambling on crypto and best of luck to you, but you know, investing in real estate, I think we should have lower risk tolerance than some others. How do we establish that to make sure they have that level of experience and judgment? Is it down to, you know, maybe I'm fishing for a little bit of a plug here, but is it down to focusing on the guys that have been in the business for 42 years? I mean, there are younger folks in the business. I mean, I'm 34. I haven't had 30 or haven't had 42 years on the planet. So how do you make sure they have that judgment, even if they're not, you know, 42 years into the business? Is that possible? Again, it comes back to that vulnerability. I, I talk a lot with my investors about psychology. And one of the things I talk about is uh, shame. And I think the, the common link to people who have a conscience is when they make a mistake, they regret it, and maybe they're ashamed of it. And maybe that's the way to learn a lesson because walking around feeling ashamed and regretful is the worst feeling. I'd rather be in the bathroom throwing up in the toilet than feel like just tremendous shame. And when 2008 happened, even though the whole economy crashed, I felt shame because I brought people in who trusted me into a deal. And the one thing I want to do, you, you mentioned the word judgment. If your judgment is really good, chances are, even if something goes against you, you won't be ashamed. You might be upset and you might have to explain things, that shame thing is what I think we all want to avoid if we have a conscience. And so I talk about the fact that I was, I felt that shame. And there's a, a researcher named Brene Brown. I recommend that whoever doesn't know about her listens to her Ted talk on vulnerability and shame because it's really important. And I think that's the key to it is that if we can talk about things like that with people don't hear, uh, salesmen say. I'm going to talk to you about the hardest time in my life and how I was ashamed of what happened and what I have to do now, which is have really good judgment and make really good decisions. So that doesn't happen again. I can handle a downturn. I just can't handle being ashamed of doing something really stupid. So that's how I look at it. 
So having been in the business for 42 years, been 64 years old, what keeps you going? I have to imagine that you're in a position where you don't need to work anymore if you don't want to. You don't need to be doing these deals. I might not be right about that, but assuming I am, why are you still doing deals? So I enjoy the people. You know, I talked about Jonathan Miller, my tenant who uh, was on Shark Tank. I enjoy the relationship with him. And I'll tell you what we did. He actually called me one day after becoming a tenant. And he said, I like the way you treat me as a tenant. And our relationship is really great. And I know what you do. I've made some money in this business. I'd like to invest a million dollars with you in real estate deals. And there's a lot of complicating factors. Part of it was a 1031 exchange that he was coming out of. But he trusted me. We had a great relationship. He went into these two investments with a half a million dollars each. One where we have a tenant that happens to be AT&T that's been in the building for 17 years. And the other one was a deal where we have a family business that manufactures the machines that make the cups for yogurt. Someone makes that. I can tell you they're on 83rd Street in Burr Ridge, Illinois. And they've got seven family members. But those relationships are great because every day I get to talk to my friends. And my friends are my partners in my real estate deals. And they're my tenants. And you ever watch uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm? Oh, of course. I love it. I love the show because, or do you ever watch Jerry Seinfeld on Comedians in Cars? With, oh, yeah. Okay. Isn't that what life is? I mean, those guys have all the money in the world. And what do they do for fun? They go out for coffee into a deli with their friend, or they go for a ride in the car, or they go around and they get in trouble. Whatever, you know, it's Larry David, he's in trouble all the time. But it's the relationships with people. When you've got everything, that's the only thing that's left. And why I like it is because it's a framework. Industrial real estate investing is a framework for maintaining great relationships with people that you like. Nice. I like that. Yeah. So given your perspective as somebody who's seen a few economic cycles, ups and downs, and there's a lot of talk about where we stand today, interest rates having risen much faster than anybody expected in any industry. We talked a little bit about your perspective on the industrial market into the future, but you know, more broadly in, in real estate generally, what do you think we're looking at? I think we're going to see a downturn and I think it's going to be several years of difficult times. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who just raised a $250 million multifamily fund and he sees that there will be opportunities because when it's time to refinance, a lot of the people who were not thinking about mitigating risk, they were thinking about how they were going to make all this money on promotes and carried interests and profits. They're going to see opportunities where people can't refinance and have to sell. And so they like a downturn. I don't like a downturn, but it gives us an opportunity to find out, to find deals that otherwise during these crazy sun is shining every day kind of times don't present themselves. And in our case, it's also fun because we go, we, we call families that own buildings where they have a business that they started in the building and now it's in the second or third generation. Grandpa started the business. He made products that go into your Apple watch and grandpa died. 
and the two sons took it over and the two sons hate each other. One worked hard, one didn't. The one who worked hard wants to get rid of the other one. They're fighting and fighting. They bring all their kids in the business. Now they've got six grandchildren of the founder and everybody wants to get rid of the building and the business. So they sell the business to a private equity group. Many manufacturing companies are owned by private equity. And the fun is I get to know these families and I see the dynamic and I get to know the people and I see tremendous dysfunction or sometimes people get along. One out of every 10 families, they actually love each other. But just sort of working through the dynamics to figure out how to make a deal with that family and buy the building and then have their old company that's now owned by some private equity group with really deep pockets. And then going out and explaining it to a group of investors. For me, that is just a blast. That's really fun. And making really good decisions along the way so that I'm not ashamed of anything later. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're having fun with the business right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Joel, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? This book right here. You, have you read it? It is so good. The Four, Four Agreements Agreement. I have. It's been a little while. It's a two-hour read, and it's really about how to be a good person, what it takes. It, it's about being honest, making sure that you're really good with your word, and doing your best in all situations. And I just, I love the message. Nice. Question number two, who or what inspires you? I have a 96-year-old partner and he's still going at it. He still invests with me. He's my biggest investor. And a lot of these older guys say, I don't want any green bananas. I'm not going to live long enough for them to turn yellow. Just bring <laughs> me all the green bananas because I want to have fun. So we get together and we have, coffee and we have lunches and that's that Larry David thing. It's the coffee. It's like this things we're talking about. He inspires me because he's still going and he loves it. That's awesome. And having friends that are 96, I'm sure he has a lot of wisdom that he can share. He does. Question number three, thinking about Joel in the future, think about a, a Joel at 80 years old. What does he have to say to Joel of today? Actually, let's look at Joel at 96, just like my friend. Pete. All right. 96 <laughs> is great. You never know, right? You never know. But I think the best answer is build deep relationships that matter to you. Just keep, keep the, keep your loved ones close and don't get into fights and wars with people. It's just not worth it. I love it. Joel, thanks so much for joining us and sharing this knowledge. If folks want to reach out and get in touch, where can they track you down? BritProperties.com. B-R-I-T. Talking about people we like. Our property manager's name was Brad when we named the company. And so Brit is, Brad really is terrific. Brit. <laughs> I love that. Naming a company can be hard and you got creative and had fun with it. So I appreciate that. And appreciate you joining us once again today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you on the next one.